Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz drummer, a legend, Mr. Ralph Peterson. He talked about his latest CDs released back in 2018 and what's coming up in 2019 from both the studio and the road. This cat from Pleasantville, New Jersey, has enjoyed a very prolific recording career that began back in 1985 with the fabled Blue Note label with the house band OTB or out of the blue. And for more than 30 plus years, he's been one of the most distinctive and recognizable drummers playing with the likes of Terrence Blanchard, Branford Marsalis, David Murray, Roy Hargrove, Michael Brecker, Betty Carter, and even the Roots. And most importantly, he was handpicked by the great Art Blake. He is the second drummer in the legendary band leaders, Big Jazz Messengers Band. And that was until Blakey's passing away back in 1990. He talked about his legendary career run up to this point, what's next, his ability to defy the mortality odds, and so much more. Please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Ralph, thank you for taking a minute out for me on Jazz, man. I appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. So let's go ahead and dive right in here. I want to know, are there any new recording projects on the horizon for you this year? I would preface answering your question by letting you know that uh, we released two records in October 2018. Uh, I remember Boo, the first big band record, and I, I qualify it as the first big band record, and Aggregate Prime, Inward Venture. And so I qualify that as the first big band record because the second big band record is, in fact, already done. And so the answer to your question is absolutely there will be at least two new recordings in 2019. Gen X Big Band's follow-up CD recorded at uh, in studio um, at at the Power Station in New York City. Very excited about the writing on that. We have a very talented young vocalist on that recording, and uh, the playing is just. They just keep raising the, I keep raising the bar and they keep sailing over it. I'm just so yeah. proud of them. The second will be in uh, dedication to Art Blakey's centennial birthday. Actually, it will be the first release of 2019 on Onyx Productions record label. And that's going to be the messenger legacy live at the side door in Connecticut. And so that's going to be, uh, Bill Pierce, Bobby Watson, Brian Lynch, Jeff Keezer, and Essiet Essiet. So it's an amazing band, and uh, super excited to be a part of this project and leading this project and having the trust and confidence of these master musicians as we not only pay tribute and honor, and it's just something that's important for me to say, that the Messenger Legacy is not simply a repertory band that plays the music of a group led by a guy who's no longer alive. Uh, yes, we will play some of the old war horses, uh, Blues March and Along Came Betty will be on the record. A couple of Bobby's, you know, classic tunes, including uh, In Case You Missed It, will be on the record. But in case you missed it, is a classic. is is a is a very good example of the nature of Art Blakey, because he was always open to fresh 
musical ideas. Bobby Watson uh, wrote that tune. The uh, musical skeleton from that tune comes from a, a very popular tune in the 70s called Always There. Right? <laughs> Art always wanted to deal with musical forms, new musical forms, harmonically, structurally, you know what I mean? He had his way of playing time, and that was his. And and we moved the ball forward on, in case you missed it, on this live record. There are some uh, tunes and sections of tunes where I am doing my able best to to to, to conjure and channel the spirit, evoke and... and the spirit of, of, of our Blakey. But then there are moments on the record where I, per his demand and marching orders, that I step out to make statements of my own that show how, you know, he helped me grow into who I am. So we're going to continue uh, working this band after the, uh, after the centennial. Uh, we've got a lot of work lined up, including Rockville, Maryland, uh, Mid-Atlantic Jazz Festival. We have two West Coast runs, one in February, one in May. The Kennedy Center in May. We're going to Australia and Beijing in June. We're hard at work on the European, you know, festivals of July, making some progress on Newport festivals even into October. So we're really excited. We're going to release the record on May on May 20th, which is my 57th birthday. You know, yes, there's a lot of exciting stuff coming from artist production in Ralph Peterson, absolutely. So I want to go back to the beginning of your life. How did the kids from Pleasantville, New Jersey, go on to release 20-plus albums as a leader and have a, a, a career that spans 30 plus years up to this point. <laughs> well, okay, okay. That's a fair enough question because I wonder myself sometimes. You know, when you when you're seated on the on the dais with 30 jazz messengers, including Reggie Workman and, and Bill Pierce and Went Marcellus, Brad Marcellus, you know. Eddie Henderson and Billy Harper, you know, like we did at the Jazz Congress just a couple of days ago. And yeah, that's definitely one of those pinch yourself moments. And like, how the hell did I get here? <laughs> but my father was a drummer, and his father played cymbals in the church. So drums go back, timekeeping, you know, drums go back two generations. I studied drums. Well, I didn't start studying drums until I got to Rutgers University. I played drums all my life. You understand what I'm trying to say? Uh, yeah. But I was a funk drunk, okay? And I started playing trumpet in fourth grade, and that was my that was my pathway into, you know, what we call jazz music. Yeah. Because the one uncle who didn't play drums or music would always bring me records from New York, one of my father's brothers. I went to Rutgers University, and that was that was important. You know, high school was mainly funk bands and marching bands. Nothing. I'm not a jazz baby. I don't have one of these, you know, from the DNA, from the womb, you know, like a lot of cats from New Orleans. 
you know, or, or places like Kansas City. You know what I mean? Uh, sure. Although, although the tradition of serious musicians from New Jersey is vast, you know, from Count Basie and Cozy Cole, uh, you know, to Wayne Shorter and Woody Shaw, to serious musicians of all type, including Bruce Springsteen and Queen Latifah. So, you know, New Jersey has a, a rich tradition of its own that it should always be proud of. Right? Um, but I went to Rutgers University and studied under Paul Jeffrey, Bill Fielder, and my drum teacher, Michael Carvin, who failed me in my first percussion department audition because I didn't know any rhythms. And he said, like, you know, you can't study with this. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so the first and most important thing I was told as a young player, you know, uh, turning towards jazz was no. You got to put in some more work. That's not good enough. You know, and uh, it was the most important message because it, it it cleared the pathway for learning. You know, you can't fill a glass that that already thinks it's full. You can't put anything in a glass in a cup that already is full. And so. You know, Kenny Barron was there as well, with my keyboard harmony instructor, encouraged me in my first forays into composition. You know, from there, it was like, it shot into hyperspeed, you know, because then I began to pursue. And, and so, having failed the percussion audition, I played something in my first semester, freshman year until an opportunity to prove that I was, in fact, a drummer presented itself. And so by 1983, I was working regularly with Bibus Brian Carrot, who regularly had Bradford Marcellus in the band. And eventually Walter Davis came to Rutgers for a Tad Dameron clinic with Philly Joe Jones. I got my first hit in like 82 with Walter Davis. I was I was 20 years old, man. I was, you know, I didn't know shit. I didn't know what I didn't know, you know. At 56 now, the only thing I know is how much I don't know now and what I still need to work on. My first gig in New York with Walter Davis was at Barry Harrison's Jazz Cultural Theater and had Phil Bowler on bass Walter Davis, of course, the great pianist and composer and jazz messenger, and Wynton and Bradford. And so a uh, couple of months after that, I had the opportunity. I had been following the jazz messengers around because Terrence and I went to college together, and once he got the gig, you know, it was easier for me to slip slip in the musician's door, get backstage, rolling with him. And so I eventually met Art, and then I was reintroduced to Art at McHale's and Winton, by Winton, <laughs> and he asked me to sit in on a night where Smitty Smith and Tay Watts and Cindy Blackman had already played. So he's, he's like, so you want to play? And I'm like, uh Sure, and I'm saying yes and shaking my head no at the same time inside, you know, it'll be crazy. So he says, come back tomorrow 
Rehearsals at 2 o'clock. Come back tomorrow. Rehearsal to bed. Get together. I show up for rehearsal. The band is there. Art comes to the club about 8.30 for the 9 o'clock hit. First thing he asked about me was, was he on time? Yeah. And that was the beginning of that apprenticeship, you know, direct apprenticeship. So, I mean, and that's how it happened. And then from being asked to to play in the two-drummer big band, it was made to me the last jazz messenger drummer chosen by Art Blakey. There are a lot. Art had a lot of children. We are all children of Art Blakey. Anybody that plays drums is a, is, is a child of Art Blakey, whether they know it, admit it, or not. Really, <laughs> you know, but the immutable truth is that he, he only picked one guy last. And so I take that as a deeply, as an honor, both an honor and a responsibility. And it led to me working with John Faddis, which led to Stanley Turkey, which led to, you know, each, each gig lends itself to to the next gig until you get to OTV and, you know, Ralph Peterson as a co-leader, which sets the stage for V, you know, and the, re and the, and the, uh, during the, uh, uh, renaissance of the, 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 the second Blue Note renaissance of the 80s, you know. I was a part of that deal with the Japanese, you know. So, yeah. So, at this point, you know, it's very clear and evident throughout your career. You've been prolific, you've been busy, you've been around a lot of big names. My question is this. As a full-time professor now at Berkeley, what did you learn from art? What did you learn from Betty Carter, Michael Brecker, Roy Hargrove? What did you learn from a lot of these esteemed, veteran, seasoned, legendary kind of people that have helped you teach the next generation of jazz musicians? Well, you know, we had Roy's celebration last night. Roy, you know, was, I call Roy my little big brother. You know, because Roy, Roy came, I met Roy at Mount Fuji, and I was there with the V Quintet with Terrence and Jerry, you know, when he first came on the scene. And, uh, but, with respect to all of the other names you mentioned, everything. I learned, you know, everything is relevant. What I do at Berkeley and any place else that I teach, I'm also a lecturer, intermittent lecturer at, at Harvard, and uh, been at Berkeley 16 years. I've been teaching on a collegiate level for 30 years. It's that it's more to playing this music than the notes, than the technical. That this music is a language, and there's a vocabulary that has to be learned in order to understand how to communicate it correctly. While it is imperative that musicians seek their seek uh, 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 originality in their thinking and not be afraid to have their own thoughts. 
we sometimes have allowed younger players to uh, get away with not having a, a, a broad and deep enough foundation. And what I learned from these guys is that they all knew music. The amount of piano and drums that Michael Brecker could play. You know, Betty's ability, what, what I learned from Betty about playing ballads, you know, and tempo, dynamics, and, and what art would teach you about the arc of a solo, how it had a beginning, a middle, and an ending, and so did a tune. And so did a set, you know, and they were, uh, and that those principles were loosely based on similar uh, principles. And, 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 you know, so it is through the collegiate jazz education mechanism that I try to foster an atmosphere of apprenticeship rather than academia. When students write me emails telling me they're interested in being in my ensemble by telling me what their ensemble ratings numbers are, basically I ignore them because in the world you're not going to send Gary Bartz an email <laughs> telling them what your ensemble grades were and expect him to even answer it, let alone invite you on the bandstand to play. But if you show up at Gary Bosch's gig often enough with the proper level of humility and your instrument armed with knowledge and the information of the music that he's playing, first of all, if you do that, you'll be a better musician anyway, whether he asks you to play or not. But if he asks you to play, you'll be in a position to honor the moment and play in the moment and not go up and ask that the, that the flow and form of the set be altered so that you can, you know, play a blues and F. I have an open band I have an open bandstand concept. Anybody anywhere is always welcome to sit in with me and any of my groups that I lead at any time. But call one of the tunes that we're playing. Don't come up there and call rhythm changes in B flat unless you play a tune that we played that it's loosely based on rhythm changes or something like that. Call from the book. It's, it's, a, it's about respecting the bandstand that you're stepping on, you know. That's how I try to carry forward what I've learned from these guys. So in a career that's been full of so much over three-plus decades, what's been the key to you to evolving and keeping yourself fresh and staying in that moment. Being open-minded to all forms of music, um, listening to all forms of music, keeping young, keeping youthful, energetic people around me, 
Those people aren't always young. <laughs> Gary Bosch is, is one of the most useful, exuberant, healthy, energetic grandmasters that I, that, that I know. You know, just to be speaking about him again. He's also, uh, probably the single, uh, individual most responsible for me having my record label. You know, and because he was the one that hammered the lesson home that before Onyx Productions, I wasn't in the record business. I was an employee of people who were in the record business because I didn't own anything. I don't know, 30, 30 years as in the business. Yeah, well, I try to stay healthy. I try to stay fit, you know. I try to stay plugged in to what's happening in the world. And I continue to study the history of this music. And what I learn in studying the history of this music is how all the people I love study other things and were open to other things, whether it was musical or spiritual or physical. Um, very important lesson I learned from Bill Fielder, very simple lesson, is that like anything, and 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 was reinforced, you know, when I when I became drinking drug free, almost twenty three years ago. But anything that isn't growing is dying. You know, the universe isn't stagnant. It's kind of like the tide of the ocean. It's either moving in or moving out. Even in the face of my current health challenges. Having gone through <laughs> a metal plate and eight screws in my right ankle, a replaced right hip spinal fusion at L5S1, uh, Bell's palsy, and four cancer surgeries in the last three years, and currently on chemo. I'm probably the healthiest sick person you know. <laughs> because, cause, cause I get up at five in the morning, it's harder under, when I'm out on the road, to, to remain consistent, I had a salad for breakfast trying to, you know, evoke some kind of penance for the way I've been eating the last couple of days. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm going to behave myself today because, you know, uh, it's been the first kind of uh, down energy day. I have a private lesson to teach later. And, but, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo, which means I'm a student. You know, that's not to say that I've mastered anything. It means that I study things. I study art, all kinds of art. And, uh, that's what I believe keeps my music and my energy useful. You know, I get up in five and and I'm coming out of the gym at 7.30 feeling good for myself. But then, you know, when I get to the gym at 5.30, quarter to 6, there's the 65, 70-year-old guys leaving the gym, and I'm just getting it. So I still got a ways to go. I ain't doing nothing because they look at me like, oh, you're a little late this morning, ain't you, youngster? You know what I mean? <laughs> you know. Yep. And so um, – uh, my health prognosis is good. We've, we have found a effective treatment for my particular cancer and my, you know, carcinogenic numbers, 
are once again on the decline. So I am hopeful, and uh, you know, and and it also it also drives the level of intensity of my work and the way I live and the passion with which I share this information because delicacy of life and the gift of life and the blessing of simply being alive isn't wasted on me anymore. You know? Right on. That's beautiful. So let me ask you this. To a musician that spent your entire life dedicated to music and jazz, why do you love jazz? Because it's the greatest, for me, it's the greatest, most challenging music in the world, and it is the music of my culture. It is the musical expression. It is a musical expression of my African-American culture. And that is not to take anything away from any of the art forms that have emerged and developed and become popular since jazz. But... And I don't have, you know, I don't want to open up too big of a conversational window about the use of the word because my music encompasses all black music and all music that I've studied that isn't black music, you know, which if, you know, the more I learn about the history of man, if you trace it back far enough, ends up being black music again anyway. <laughs> you know, because, you know, in the beginning, there was Africa. <laughs> and so, if we're all descendants of the first inhabitants of the planet and the great dome theory is accurate, then, you know, what's important is that not that we're all African, but that we're all the same. This music allows me to express my creativity, my humanity. It's incredibly cathartic. It heals me when I'm in pain. It lifts my spirits when I'm down. I hope that my music has been able to do all of those things, all of the things that it does for me. I hope that it does for other people. You know, that's my sincere hope. Absolutely. At this point in your career, are you happy with where you're at, with what you've accomplished up to this point? In the words of my instructor, Bill Field, always gratified, never satisfied, always gratified. I'm grateful, but I am not resting on where I am. I would love to write for film. Um... I would love to see the continent of Africa. I would love to write for strings perhaps one day. And so uh, there's a lot of things I'd like to do still. I'd like to make a, I'd like to make a trumpet record. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to keep sharing this music, you know. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful and humble and proud 
not just a, a, of my body of work as a performer, but of the the the, the fruit of my labor as a as an educator, from Sean Jones to Mark Whitfield Jr., Jonathan Blake, and you know Ari Honig and Tia Fuller, Big Brother, you know relationships that I've had with musicians whose success validates, you know, what I tried to share with them, which is what was shared with me. Because Art Blakey, you know, maybe say this in closing, but Art Blakey used to say all the time that you never see an armored car following a hearse. You can't take none of this with you. So if you don't share it, it dies with you. And then, how is that an expression of gratitude? Yeah, if it's so, if it's so, if you're protecting it so well that it dies with you and goes in the ground, you know, how grateful are you really for having it in the first place? You know, that's the one thing I think I always appreciate about not only jazz musicians, but especially the elders. One of the very first interviews I did eight years ago, well, nine now, and hundreds of interviews before, the very first person that gave me a chance without really even knowing this program, with Mr. Hubert Laws. And one of the mm. first things he ever said to me was he went to a car wash in L.A. and somebody came up and they were totally enamored talking to him. And he had an epiphany and he said, I can hold on to this or I can give it away. And he said, I'm going to put my life from giving it away. And I did not really absorb the wise, self-actualized notion that resonated with that. And, and the more I thought about it, it resounded with every fiber of everything that he did, from all of the years that he spent to giving gratitude to everybody around him and let that story loose. And I'm, I'm grateful to this day. He gave me an enormous opportunity. He was so gracious without even knowing anything. But that mm -hmm. quote made total sense. So, mm -hmm. um, so you get it. You get it. Yeah. And it's, okay. great. it's great when you have a personal experience with, you know, a brush with genius, and you witness the humility that is a necessary part of that genius, you know. So, let me ask you this. Everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but you know who you are best. Tell me, who do you think you are? Well, you know... Perceptions are like opinions, and opinions are like assholes. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got one, and some of them are full of shit. So, I like, not to like to believe who I am, I am a... <laughs> I'm a son whose parents are no longer with me. Huh? I lost my mother in October. And so I'm growing into the stage of adulthood where both your parents are gone. That changes how you look at almost everything. Yeah. I'm a parent, proud father of... Uh, daughter who will 
be 30 years old this year, and for the last, I believe, six years, if not seven, has been the principal flautist in the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra. I'm so incredibly proud of Sonora. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a person who lives their life drinking drug-free, so I'm a recovering addict. And uh, it's important for me to embrace that part of who I am because that challenge in my life was probably the greatest threat to my gift. I'm a Buddhist and have been chanting uh, for 30 years. As I said earlier, I'm a martial artist, and I believe that, you know, if you have to fight, you've kind of lost the battle. But if you have to fight, the battle should be short, and you should win. (laughs) (laughs) And as a way to make amends to all of the physical abuse I did to my body as as an active addict, I continue my training and development as a martial artist to try to heal, you know, my body. And I'm an educator. In a way, it's like being a parent because I have the responsibility of having influence over developing minds, and that's a huge responsibility. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cancer warrior who is not allowing my diagnosis to define how I live my life. You know, King Lear, there's a scene in King Lear where, you know, guys are about to be executed. And one of them says, begins to comment on, them, on you know, I think I, shall, I think I shall fall in this manner. And I hope that I will fall in that manner. And the other guy says to him, man, we're about to lose our head. What? Because we're about to lose our lives. What does it matter? What difference does it make the way we fall? And the guy says, when the fall is all that's left, it matters a great deal. And so from the point of having been diagnosed with cancer, I have made a redetermination to live my life in a certain fashion, based on based on, on principles. Because one thing's for sure, nobody gets out of this life alive, and none of us really know when we're going to go. I am trying to make as much music and heal as many relationship snafus and make as many amends which is not just about saying you sorry, but that, you know, the word amends comes from the root word men, which is to repair or make better. So it ain't about an apology. It's about how do you repair the damage. And so uh, that's who I am. That's how I try to live my life, you know, a day at a time. Yeah. And, uh, Mostly, and lastly, in the context of why you called me, okay, I'm a centurion. 
you know, as an educator. I'm a centurion. I'm guarding the gates and access to this music. Art Blakey says, stand here and make sure that it doesn't die. And so uh, when I look at, at the body of my soldiers, the, you know, my students who I call my soldiers, Justin Faulkner, <laughs> you know, Antonio Sanchez, and not just, not just drummers, Melissa Aldana, just two countless to, to names. Uh, I am grateful and both inspired and humbled by the awesome responsibility and the gift of being able to pass along what I was lucky enough to encounter in my life. Beautiful. And I, I got lots, I got, I got a lot to give left, to, you know, and I, I honestly believe and agree with my teacher, Michael Carver, that that's why I'm still here. Yeah. Because, you know, my second cancer surgery, my liver, my liver cancer surgery, my kidneys failed on the operating day. Wow. So I, I coded. And so the re, I, I, but I'm still here. Yeah. So, my, so Michael Carver said, well, I guess you ain't done yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. That's beautiful, man. That's a great way, great triumphant way to kind of wrap everything up. Ralph, thank you for opening up about your beautiful story and jazz and your life and continued success with everything, your music, battling cancer, and everything beyond. Thank you, man. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New Jersey, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Ralph for his graciousness, his time, and all of that cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.